Let's dig into Samuel. So open up to First Samuel. Um, as always with what we're, um, with how we do this, but maybe especially today with, like I said, we're trying to cover a lot of ground. But a lot of this ground kind of recaps itself, especially Kings and Chronicles, which we'll get into later. So this is not, we're not going to dig into every narrative. We're not going to dig into every detail. We're like big picture overview. Want to get familiar with the books and what's in them, right? That's kind of our goal. Um, so we're not going to become experts on seeing with Kings and Chronicles, but hopefully you'll get familiar with, I know what's in there. I know the timeline this covers. That's always our goal. Um, so before we do first and second Samuel, we've been doing this the past few weeks. I think it's helpful. Let's catch up quick where we are. So we don't need to, we don't need to spend forever recapping all the books, but tell me a couple things about Genesis. Like what part of the narrative does it cover? Like beginning to end of the book where, where does Genesis get us? Creation, flood, flood. Patriarchs. Uh, who, are, which, who would you say are the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Okay. Joseph. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Joseph. And then the 12 tribes. Yeah. Okay. The 12 tribes of what? Somebody else? Israel. Why? Joseph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Okay. So where does the story end at the end of Genesis? Right before a new king comes in. Where? Okay. Yes, yes, yes. So then Exodus, real quick. What happens in Exodus? A couple big things. Moses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Exodus. Yeah. Okay. What, and, and the book has kind of in two halves, right? What's the first half? Well, uh, that's, yeah. The Exodus and then the law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically they get to Mount Sinai in chapter 19, and the whole rest of the book is the conversations Moses has at Mount Sinai and writing it down and rewriting it down like Haley talked about because mm-hmm. the golden calf issue. But who made the, who like led the making of the golden calf? Do you remember this? Aaron. Aaron. It's insane. Okay. Uh, Leviticus. Catch us up on Leviticus real fast. The Day of Atonement. Okay. Another yeah. law. Tell us about that, Asia. <laughs> things that lead up to the Day of Atonement and then things that bring it back down and all of them line up because the Day of Atonement is a big turning point and that is the whole main idea of Leviticus. Yes, 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 yes. Um, I, was, I don't think Troy would mind me sharing this. I thought it was so funny. I was at Troy the other day, and he was like, when you're talking about chiasm the other day, I was like, that was a word I'd never seen before. And like, from Bullock County, I'm thinking, like, where is it? I don't know. He has them. That's, a, that's, a, that's fantastic. Yeah, isn't that great? Okay, I love Troy. Uh, so that's Leviticus. It's kind of a, Leviticus doesn't cover much narrative ground, right? It's just kind of the rehash of the law, Day of Atonement at the center. Um, what happens in Numbers? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of, lot of sort of numbers is very underrated, I think, right? The, the first few chapters are the census, and after that, there's a bunch of stuff. Okay, so they wander in the wilderness. Why do they have to wander? The spies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't, that was, yeah. They sent spies into the land. Two of them thought it was a good idea. Ten of them didn't, so they didn't go take the land. And God said, if you're not going to obey me, then you can't go in. So you can wander around the desert till you all die for 40 years. And then the next group comes in. Okay, so Deuteronomy. What's Deuteronomy? Yeah, so it's basically a recap. What is what does Deuteronomy kind of feel like or read like? Yeah, so it's like Moses' last words a little bit, right? Him saying, I'm about to leave, I'm about to die. Let's just rehash what happened. Please, when you go in there, don't blow it, because I blew it. It's kind of the, the general sense. Um, so, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Joshua. Tell us about Joshua. 
He stayed in the tent when everyone else didn't go. Yeah. <laughs> when did that happen? Not an invite. That was an exodus. Right. And uh, I think we see the fruit of that in Joshua's the leadership, fruit of that, right? When he gets to lead the people in yeah. the promised land. Yeah. What's the first big battle they have? That's the second one. Yeah, Jericho. Jericho. Why did they fail at AI? Do you remember that? It's a little in the weeds. The person had the stuff. Yeah, the person had the stuff. Yeah. So they went and attacked AI after Jericho. It's so clear. But does anybody remember his name? Achan. yeah. So Achan kept stuff he wasn't supposed to keep. It was supposed to be destroyed and sacrificed to the Lord. So they lost in battle and then kind of weeded him out. And he was dead. God got his stuff back. And then... They moved on to the promised land. Um, what else do you remember about numbers? What? Yes. Yeah. So much of the Old Testament so far is that. There's a lot more of that today too. What else happens in in uh, Joshua? They're taking out the things that are devoted to destruction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then how does the book end? They kind of sweep through the the promised land, and what happens at the end? It's like Joshua's mini sermon. Yeah. Yeah. Joshua's got a farewell of like. Don't blow it a lot like Moses. Like, be faithful. For me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. What about you? Mm-hmm. And they divide up the promised land, and tribes all kind of go their separate ways, right? And then judges. Oh, the altar thing where they said Phineas, and then they're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, you're, you're cool. Yeah, Gad and Reuben and them go and build an altar in a separate land up north of the river, or east probably of the river. Yeah. North and east of the river probably. And, yeah, they send Phineas to go check it out, and it's like, oh, no, that was a good idea. Yeah. Is, is that in Judges? It's in Joshua. That's in Joshua. So tell me about Judges. Just fast, fast. That was all so clear. Everything you guys said made complete sense. Yeah, they. Yeah, that's kind of the Judges is hinting at everything's bad because you don't have a king, which like Samuel then is going to be the answer to that question, saying, "I think you were mistaken. That didn't really help." Uh, so Judges is real bad, right? Real, real, real bad, real bad. And then tell me about Ruth. It yeah, it happens during the time of the judges. So in women. that chaos. It's about women. It's your daughter's favorite thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wasn't that sweet? That's that sweet girl. So cool. I could picture her talking to me the whole time. Every yeah. time she said, well, I could see your face. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. I just thought, this is a side note, but just to encourage you, it was really sweet because when we did like the five things with the second years and Elliot one of our first was like I want to teach on the book of Ruth it yeah. was like this is what a good dad does is like when I I want to do this and it's like okay let's like provide opportunity to like help you do what you want to do mm. it was just a cool perspective of like how you let Elliot in that of like you saw her desire to do something and you saw an opportunity for her to step into it so you like let mm. her do it and then just to see it like how much more does our Heavenly Father like I mm. see your desire let me like provide opportunity just like wait on me and like trust in me and hear my voice like in that it was mm-hmm. just like a cool thing for mm-hmm. me to be like oh that's like a dad mm-hmm. that's, sweet. that's good well thanks yeah she's a sweet girl yeah. <laughs> sweet sweet girl okay um, so that's Ruth and that gets us up to where we are so let's do first and second Samuel we ready for that yes okay um, so the author of Samuel um, we're gonna I'm gonna tell you three names here it, I think it's some combination of three people Samuel Nathan and Gad. Samuel and Nathan and Gad. It's not the Gad that the tribe was named after. It's another guy. Samuel, Nathan, and Gad. So I think, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, G-A-D, yeah. Samuel, Nathan, and Gad. 
Um, so here's why we think that. Samuel, um, we think, writes a lot of this stuff, because a lot of it, especially early, is about him and the stuff he did. But the book carries on after he's dead. So he didn't finish it. It's kind of like with the end of Deuteronomy. It's like it describes a little bit after Moses is dead, so somebody finished it, you know. So Samuel does a lot of it. Nathan is kind of the next prophet in line. We don't have a ton about Nathan, but Nathan's the one who confronts David with Bathsheba. Um, and so Nathan's kind of the one who takes up Samuel's leadership mantle because Samuel's sons are messed up, which is our Old Testament theme, right? Over and over, people can't pass on healthy life and faith to their family. So it's tough. Uh, David is bad at that uh, for the most part. So Samuel, Nathan, and then a guy named Gad. Look at First Chronicles twenty nine twenty nine just real fast. I know we were in Samuel, but flip over there. So I think it's helpful for you to see it. First Chronicles twenty nine twenty nine. This is a little tiny, tiny, tiny thing. But it's like, oh, that's a helpful, because it, if you're trying to figure out who wrote this stuff, which I know doesn't keep you up at night all the time. But again, I think just understanding how cohesively this stuff works gives me so much more confidence when people come with weird Bible questions. It's like, I know what we're talking about a little bit. So First Chronicles 29, 29, little tiny detail, easy to miss. Here's what it says. As for the events of King David's reign from beginning to end, they're written in the records of Samuel the seer, the records of Nathan the prophet, and the records of Gad the seer together with the details of his reign and power and the circumstances that surrounded him in Israel and the kingdoms of all the other lands. So I think this is one of the little clues in the Bible where they're trying to point to, we're not going to cover everything in Chronicles. If you want more about David, you can look at the stuff that Samuel, Nathan, and Gad wrote down. Does that make sense? So I had never seen that verse before until I started studying to teach this, and it was like, oh, that's helpful. Yes, McKinley. Seer, I'm trying to remember my Old Testament from college. Yeah. Seer I don't know linguistically, like I don't know if that's a Hebrew thing, but in concept, yes. Okay. The seer is another way. It's like somebody who sees and can speak on behalf of the spiritual realm. So yeah, it's like a prophet. So Samuel, Nathan, and Gad. I think these little things, like I said, I never would, especially in books like Chronicles, I'm not like deeply dissecting every Chronicles verse. So it's easy to miss stuff like this, but I think it's so helpful to like, oh, the Bible is actually telling us how and who wrote this stuff down. That's really helpful. Um, okay, so back to First Samuel. Is it always like at the end where you kind of get pick up those notes, like beginning and end of books like that? Often, but not always. Okay. Sometimes it's little random things in the middle. Yeah, sometimes random things in the middle. But often it's beginning and end. They'll give you clues. There's um in... I think it's in Kings a lot that they'll say like other details of so-and-so's reign are written in the books of the annals of the kings of Judah. And they're like, well, I don't have that book. <laughs> so they, but that's at the end of like the summary of a lot of the kings. And so I think they had, it was almost like in the royal library you can find where they wrote down what he did. It's like we don't have that stuff anymore. So there's a couple other little clues of like, oh, there's other things that they're drawing on that we just don't have that's like in the middle of the books all the time. I don't know. I mean, they could have been they, it might have been that they erased it to write the next new thing to keep track of. It might have been that when they got conquered, it got destroyed. It, I, you know, any number of things. Or they thought all the important information is written down somewhere else, so we don't need to keep this one. They can just read First and Second Kings. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know. Anything else? We good? 
We're on our first bullet point so far. We're tracking. <laughs> no, that's me. Okay, here's the, uh, the when it happened thing. I just, instead of trying to reproduce my own of this, I just took a picture of a chart I found in the commentary that I thought was helpful. Because again, this, this stuff for me is like, oh, I see on a calendar kind of where it is. I see where these characters overlap. Because especially in these books that are so full of narratives and weird things and people in geography that we just don't know, I, I read it and start to feel overwhelmed. And then I get confused and then I skip right and it's like let's just get to psalms or something you know so i think it's so helpful to like real dates real times the dates are always a little approximate you know we're always trying to kind of piece it together but i think it's so helpful to see some of the events of this stuff and how they fit together yeah brandon so they only had two kings before everything yeah not crazy their first king yeah so they had saul they had david and then david's son and then it split so three i guess but um yeah, it's rough. It's rough. Um, so is this making sense? You can just kind of look at that chart and hopefully it clicks. You'll see some of those events that it talks about as we flow through the books a little bit today. But I think this chart's helpful. Good? Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of giggling happening. I need to know what's going on. Stop laughing. And then I'm laughing. I'm really sorry. It's okay. I just wanted to make sure somebody didn't say something funny that I missed. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Um, so outline let's look at that I'm going to give you a couple different ways to think of an outline of this book the first one is probably more helpful but the second one is maybe more interesting so um, first Samuel 1 through 7 this is I would just call the narrative outline of this book like here's the flow of the story so first Samuel 1 through 7 I would just call the rise of Samuel that's the beginning story of his life um, with Hannah and Eli and all that stuff I mean and that's like the beginning of his really becoming the leader it's like people were kind of looking to him and he was you know, teaching and stuff like that, but by chapter 7 is when it's like, oh, he's our guy. There's a verse in chapter 7 where it says, and Samuel was the leader of the people of Israel after this event. So that's the rise of Samuel. First Samuel 8 through 15, I would call the rise and fall of Saul. So Saul's anointed as king, and then that doesn't go well for super long. He has a good little stretch at the beginning, but then um, doesn't last. First Samuel 16 to Second Samuel 1, the rise of David. So Samuel or David is anointed to be king in 1 Samuel 16, but he doesn't become king until 2 Samuel. So he's got a long way. You guys have heard this talked about, have probably thought about it. He's got a long way from knowing God's got a plan for me. God set me apart for this. God called me to this. And now I've got to wait while no one else knows or the people who do know want me to do it in ways that are unethical. Or somebody who does know Saul is so afraid that he tries to attack me. But David knows in here, he's got to be able to keep in here. God has something for me. And if it's worth waiting from chapter 16 to the next book, which is, you know, I mean, look up at your timeline, a long time. If it's worth waiting that long, the only way he can do that, living out in the wilderness and almost dying several times, I think, is, is just trusting God will do what he said. So did God really say it? And do I really trust him? Those are two huge questions that all of us, I think, have to ask often. Did God really say it? Do I really trust him? And that's how we can move forward. Um, which is probably good pastoral insight for us, too. I mean, like, live with that yourself, right? Like, did God really say it to me? And if so, do I really trust him? But how often when we're talking with people, that kind of thing is going to, like, those two questions are going to hinge a whole lot just in like pastoral conversation with people in church conversation with people did God does God really care about that does, did God really say this to you a lot of people will hold on to things they're like well God wants me to be happy or God wants you know whatever that sometimes is like I don't know that God does want that or did say that to you 
sometimes it is good things. You just have to remind people, okay, that is a promise from God. Can you trust him while you wait? Like that, those are basically our pastoral counseling avenues, more or less. Um, does that make sense? I think it's helpful to lean on. Okay, Second Samuel 2 through 20. Uh, I would call the rise of Israel. So Israel has been a nation, kind of. They have Saul, and they're unified a lot more with a king than they were with the judges. They win some military victories, but because, largely because Saul is just so, like, sporadic and crazy, it's like he has these really high moments where Israel's great and then really low moments where it's bad. But once David becomes king, it's like, oh, we're the kingdom. And they're established and they're centralized and they're winning battles and driving out Philistines and all that stuff. So that's when Israel really is established as a nation in the middle of 2 Samuel. Then 2 Samuel 21 to 24, I call the reign of David. So there's kind of a lot of quick summary stuff of like, here's a couple more battles. Here's kind of the finishing, concluding things. He's got a long psalm poem in there. Um, and then kind of the end of his reign where he does a couple things. Yeah, great. So that's kind of the narrative flow of the books. Here's a different outline method that, like I said, is probably not as helpful like in understanding, but is kind of interesting and can give you a, just a few big anchor points that move you through the books. Um, and by the way, these books are separated by to two separate books you know, in our Bibles, but they weren't that way originally. Originally, it was one, they're, they're intended to be one cohesive deal. It was just basically scroll length. It's like we can't fit this amount of content, so we gotta start over. So we think of them as two again? separate. Huh? Why don't we just make it one again? I think for the the idea of keeping the integrity of it was written on a separate thing, so we're gonna make a separate thing, which makes sense to me. But just to say they flow together and they were intended to flow together. Um so here's the next one, like a theological or poetic outline. First Samuel um two, one through ten is the prayer of Hannah. So that's after she's had her son, before he really comes into leadership. But that prayer of Hannah, the song she sings, um, is a major anchor point in the book that a lot of things kind of pull back to. They'll never directly say, and do you remember at the beginning when Hannah prayed this prayer, what I mean by this story is whatever. They don't make that connection explicit. But there's so many little overtones of things that happen or ways David leads or things like that that you're like, oh, Hannah prayed about that. You know, Hannah worshipped about that back in chapter 2. So she kind of sets the theme that plays out implicitly under the scenes, behind the scenes, under the radar. Does that make sense, that idea? Also, sometime, we're not going to do it today, but sometime you should compare Hannah's prayer in chapter 2 to Mary's prayer at the beginning of Luke. And just, it's like crazy how similar they are. And that can't have been by accident. Like surely Mary would have known. Like I'm just miraculously going to, was told I'm going to give birth to a son. She knows one of my heroes miraculously gave birth to a son, and this is how she worshiped God. I bet a lot of that is coming from her heart memory, you know, which is a, for one, just a really cool scriptural comparison. For another, it's, a, it's an example to me of a quote, some of you guys have probably heard me say a lot, that I, it's a big deal. That's why we do so much of this stuff. It's a big deal to me that Charles Spurgeon said, like, it's blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until your blood becomes bibline, which I think is a word he made up, but I love it. And your language is flavored with the words of the Lord, which I think is so good. I think that's what happened to Mary. She, was, she knew it. And so when she is overcome with worship, what comes out of her is scripture. And I think if that could be true of us on so many levels, what a beautiful thing, right? Like when you're stressed, when you're excited, when you're praising, when you're crying out in pain, if what comes out is scripture that's made your blood just Bible, then I think our life is going to be in a much better trajectory. So... 
First Timothy, beginning of Luke, cool comparison. Here's the next big, like, theological or poetic anchor point in the Samuel books. In chapter 7, 4 through 17, the Oracle of Nathan, this is called. Um, I, I title it that because that's often what it's called, like the Nathan Oracle or the Oracle of Nathan, which is like sounds weird. But it's basically Nathan was a prophet and God told him something to say to David, and this is when he said it. But this is the big anchor promise where, where Nathan says to David, God said that he is going to establish a line of kings through you forever. That's the promise in 2 Samuel 7. Which is big for David at the time because the context of it, which we'll see as we kind of skim through, the context of it is when David says, I'm living in a palace. God's presence is living in a tent. Let me build him a temple. And at first Nathan says, yeah, go for it. That's a great idea. And then Nathan prays on it that night and comes back and says, actually, God said not to, but he's going to build a family line for you forever. And so David's like, okay, fine, we can do that. That sounds better. But um, this is a huge, huge, huge anchor point because for David... I don't. I wonder, I, we, and we just don't know. But I wonder when he heard it, if it was like, "Oh, great, God's going to honor me. This is cool. We'll have a kingdom that lasts a long time." I doubt that David was like, "Forever? You mean that you're going to send your son in the flesh to die for humanity?" Which gets into the NT right thing. It's like it's not quite that simple, you know. So, I, like I tell you guys all the time from Old Testament stuff, don't jump right away to like God said this to David, so he knew Jesus is coming. No, he didn't. I think he knew God is showing favor to my family so that we can reign and this nation can be great so that all nations on earth can be blessed through us, which is from what? Genesis where? 12. That's that's what David would have had in mind, right? So which ultimately we know finds its truest fulfillment in Jesus. Um, But that's why 2 Samuel 7 is such such a big deal. So I think moving through these books, Hannah saying God sees the lowly, God honors the humble, God is going to bring peace to a terrible place. Like this is still coming out of judges territory. And she is seeing and praying like God sees lowly, forsaken, oppressed people and is going to elevate them. And then her son becomes a leader that anoints David, a lowly, overlooked, younger brother, who then God says in chapter 7, 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to make my line of kings through you, which we know ultimately culminates in God's presence itself coming here, right? So that do you see the, like the poetic couple big rocks connect major parts of the story for us through this book. Now, 2 Samuel 22 through 23 is the Song of David, the Song of David. Um, So that stuff will sound a lot like Psalms that you read. That stuff will sound a lot like Hannah's prayer. That stuff will be a lot of David praising God for seeing him when he's alone and wandering and defeating enemies. All the stuff Hannah prayed about, all the stuff Nathan promised, David praises God because he's experienced it. And so I think that moves us through the book. Like, God sees lowly. No, really, he does. You've got to wait while he brings his promise to fruition. And then at some point you can look back and say, Wow, God, you have been exactly what you said you would be. You did keep your promise. And when I trusted you, things went well for me. And it's back to those two questions. Did God really promise it? And if so, do you trust him? And if the answer is yes, and you live that faithfully, you can look back with a heart of praise over your life and look forward with a heart of hope for what he's going to do next, right? So I think that's how theologically, spiritually, we can move through the book, not just the narrative. Is that making sense? Does that click? I think those few anchors are, are pretty helpful. Okay, um, why don't we pause here before we start flipping through chapters. Let's take a quick break, run to the bathroom, get a drink, all that stuff. And we'll come back and finish up Samuel. All right, and we're back. So we're going to flip through the text. 
Um, you guys kind of know how we do this. We'll camp out a couple stories, skim over a lot of stories. I just want you to turn the pages and follow the headings. So we'll do a lot of like, just here's what's in the narrative. So we're trying to set up what happens to give you that timeline so you know the narrative arc we're covering. But we're not going to camp out deep in all these passages, which is a shame because some of them are great. But we'll, we'll skim through a little. Um, so first thing you want is um, the story of Samuel being born. So you remember his mom, Hannah, couldn't have any children. Her husband had another wife who did have children, and she was awful to Hannah. Um, and then they go up to worship, and Hannah's praying and like begging God for a son. God ends up answering her prayer. Um, one thing I want to point out that I think is really, really interesting is um, and just worth sitting in, because this, this may be good to minister to some of us, is in chapter 1, verse 3, um, when it's kind of describing that you know, family situation, it says, year after year, this man went up, Hannah's husband, Elkanah, went up from his town to worship and sacrifice the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Then look down. Um, it says that um, Peninnah, the other wife, was making fun of Hannah and was awful to her. And then in verse 7, um, the making fun, the torturous kind of relationship, this went on year after year. Do you see that phrase repeated? Year after year, they go up to worship. Year after year, Hannah's miserable. Year after year after year. And I just think that um, is important for one, for us as we're reading scripture, to keep that kind of phrase in mind. For another, as we're living Christian life, like we talk about David, to keep that in mind. I think so often we read scripture and the, the span of Hannah's miserable to Hannah has a child and writes a prayer that's like one of the more famous parts of Old Testament scripture. Is so I can see it on one flow here. But it's year after year after year in the experience of Hannah. And so I think, remember that in Scripture. Scripture's giving us highlights. Scripture's giving us narrative bullet points. But it doesn't give us everything all the time. I think, I think even when we think about, because this is like God's miraculous intervention, right? The amount of times in Scripture where God miraculously intervenes is a lot. But Scripture does not record for us every single Christian interaction that ever happens. So like the, the percentage of God's quick, miraculous intervention that happens in the pages of Scripture, I think is, I know, and you know, is way higher than the percentage of God's miraculous intervention in the everyday lives of all the people. Does that make sense? Because this is highlights of God's action, and it's quick. But the experience of following Him and waiting on Him is year after year after year of going up and worshiping and being miserable. And I think sometimes we just have to remember that for us, for our people, that it's not quick hitting, sometimes it's long. But that doesn't mean he's absent, doesn't mean he's not listening, doesn't mean he's not watching, doesn't mean he's not moving. I think we just can, I think, uh, camp out in perseverance and sometimes the year after year faithfulness it takes to follow him and wait on him. I think it's a big deal in this story. Uh, so, what's that? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Um, so... Hannah has Samuel. She dedicates him to the Lord's service. She prays in chapter 2. We talked about that prayer. You should read it and camp out on it sometime. We're not going to today, but that's in chapter 2. Um, we've ta- have we talked in this class about um, Eli and his sons and the, this section much? I forget what all I've done with you guys. We talked about that A couple times ago. I thought we did it here too. Okay. Okay. So I'm not going to camp out here. No, you're good. No, you're good. Uh, that's why I get confused too. It's like, I know we did a retreat. I know what, okay. 
Um, so Eli's sons are terrible and selfish. They've got this story starting in chapter tw- uh, verse 12 of chapter 2 where basically they're taking more meat than they were supposed to at a different time than they were supposed to, which is one of those things we read and are like, so weird. But if you look back at the Levitical requirements, there's an allotment made for, hey, priests get to eat certain cuts of meat after the sacrifice has been made. But here they're like, kind of while the sacrifice is about to be made, they take more than they should. And they're just like taking advantage of the system and getting more than they should, more than their fair share, and using their power to dominate people, which like always let that be a heart check for us, right? Like we just don't take advantage of what's available to us. Don't take advantage of the systems that we're part of. Be, our salaries, your guys' exorbitant salaries, <laughs> are paid by people tithing. The reason that I can pay my mortgage is because people here tithe, which is a weird way to live and an incredible, faith-building way to live, humbling, awkward way to live, beautiful thing, but it's a huge responsibility to steward the tithes of people who give to this church expecting that we're living with integrity. It's a big deal. Um, So don't take that lightly, because God doesn't take it lightly either. Um, So God doesn't like that. He says your sons aren't going to continue leading. Chapter 3 is the call of Samuel. Remember when it's the middle of the night and he hears his, God's voice, but he doesn't know it's God's voice, and so there's a few interactions, and then finally God tells Samuel, you're going to be the next leader. Eli's not going to be anymore. Samuel has to tell Eli that. Um, I want to read. I know we've talked about these verses again, but I want to read them to you because I want them to sink in to young leaders' hearts. This is so good. So at the end of chapter 3, after that call, after Samuel's getting to know God's voice and he's starting to grow up into leadership, chapter 3, verse 19 says, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. Um, So notice, God was with him as he grew up. So I would tell you, be patient as you grow up and let the Lord be with you. You're still growing up, so am I. So are all of us. This isn't a talk down to the young people. We are growing into leadership, hopefully always. Um, But certainly at this phase of all of our lives, we're growing into leadership. Let God be with you as you do that. And let him give you words to say. Let him bring fruit from your words. When we try to force it, we'll look at Saul. It doesn't work very well. When we let him speak and speak from that, that's where power comes. Because it says the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And so Samuel's word came to all Israel. Your word is going to, your teaching, your leading, your effort, your ministry is going to lead people if it comes from what God gives you first. So be willing to be patient for that and wait on that and dig into this so that you have something to give. Um, and don't give it out of your charisma or ability or position. Even give it out of this. And I think that's what makes a good leader, especially a good young leader, but that's what makes a good leader. Um, okay, so that's the beginning of CML. Chapter 4, the uh, Israelites go into battle against the Philistines, who are kind of a menace throughout a lot of this time period, up until David, really. Because um, remember, what, what was Saul, or uh, Goliath? Goliath was one of these, right? He's a Philistine. So up until the time of when David becomes king, is really kind of like, we're done with that big enemy, for the most part. But up until then, the Philistines are the menace. So they're in battle with the Philistines, the Israelites are, and they say, oh, I remember how we used to win battles way back in the day. The Ark of the Covenant would go with us. Let's get that. Oh. So they get the Ark of the Covenant, <laughs> like it's going to yeah. be their little magic trick leading them into battle. 
And the Philistines even get nervous. Like, I know we've heard stories about this. But because Israel isn't, they haven't been commanded by God to do that, because they're using it as like a magic trick instead of the presence of God leading them on his mission, God's like, I'm not going to honor that. Like, the, the ark isn't a weapon in and of itself. My presence is what did that. So the Philistines win the battle, capture the ark. Devastating. Uh, when Eli hears that, Eli's two sons die in the battle, in that battle. When Eli hears that his sons died, he's sad. When he hears that the ark is captured also, he dies, falls over backwards dead. He just can't handle it. Um, the Philistines have the ark in chapter 5, which is a fun chapter to read. So they've captured the ark. They put it in the temple of their god, Dagon, which is like a big fish kind of. And when they come back in the morning, the huge statue of the fish has fallen over. And like its hands are gone, its face is gone. And they're like, oh shoot, what did we do? So they like prop it back up and they're trying to figure out what goes wrong. And then all their people start getting tumors everywhere. And like, we got to get this thing out of here. So some like Philistine leaders just counsel them like, get rid of it, but don't just send it away. Put a bunch of gold tumors and other stuff in it. So they like put gold in it and send it away. They just like attach it to animals and send it away and hope it leaves. And so it goes... And then some people in Israel find it and are like, holy crap, what is this thing? So the Levites living in that town realize what it is. They make sacrifices and worship and kind of keep it safe for a while. The ark doesn't return to Israel like where it ought to be, like in Jerusalem until when? Do you remember David? You know, when David's king and he brings it back in to its rightful place and he does his dancing thing that's not really great and he says I'll become even more identified than this some would say it's foolishness but I'll become even more identified than this David Crowder David said it first David Crowder said it second (laughs) Uh, so that's chapter 5 and then chapter 7 I talked about that's when Samuel's really established as a leader Um, so look at chapter chapter 7 verse 2 it was a long time 20 years in all that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim so that's the place where it ended up and it just stays there 20 years um, Samuel's kind of growing into leadership during this time. Um, and Samuel's like, if we're going to really deal with this problem, you've got to stop worshiping foreign gods. That's in verse 4. Then the Israelites put away their foreign gods because they've been worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. Then Samuel says in verse 5, are you with me? 7 verse 5. Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. Um, so then the Philistines hear about all this. The Israelites go into a battle with the Philistines, drive them out. Samuel sets up like a stone altar, basically, to say, remember, this is the place where this happened. And they call it Ebenezer, which in Hebrew means the stone of help. And so it's a little rock that they put there. You guys have probably heard me talk about Ebenezer stuff before. Um, what I want you to notice from this, though, a lot of things, but what I want to draw for, uh, for our time right now is... Um, they're in verse 5 and 6. So they assemble together. God prays for the people. I'll intercede to the Lord for you. And then when they had assembled, they drew water, poured it out before the Lord, which is like an offering kind of symbol, basically saying, whatever we have, we give you, God. On that day, they fasted. They confessed. We sinned against the Lord. And that's when it says Samuel was leader at Israel. Your, your Bible may have a footnote or may just say or judge. That mm-hmm. one for leaders, the same one used for judge. It's just saying he's the one in charge. Here's what I want you to notice though that's crazy. Think about the contrast from the book of Judges, right? That he would raise up a judge, and even like God's spirit will fill them, and he'd take out the jawbone of a donkey and kill a bunch of people. Or God's spirit will fill him, and Samuel's knocking down pillars and pulling down gates, and people are dying left and right, and Jephthah's doing stupid stuff, and he had stabbing a fat king, right? And the sword disappeared. You remember that? So all that stuff's happening. Those are the judges. 
which is how God was working. He was kind of working with what they had to give him. But notice when Samuel is the leader, what do they do? They gather together, they worship, they confess their sin. Samuel prays for them. This is a leader, the Bible says. That's what makes a true leader of a group of God's people. Does that make sense? So the big showy stuff was like the things in Judges that were all like, man, I'm glad that's over. But the leader that God's after is gather together, let's pray together, fast, confess, repent. It's time to start over in our heart. They haven't fought a battle yet. They're going to later, before the battle, Samuel's the leader. So I just want to remind us, too, as spiritual leaders, this is what spiritual leadership is primarily. It's not about the big showy accomplishment. That may happen. Like God uses Samuel to do that after God says he's the leader. He's the leader because he led worship and led confession and prayed for his people and brought them together and called out their sin and then had compassion when they were honest about it. That's what spiritual leadership is. And then God says, I honor that. Let's move forward. Um, So keep that in mind as we're leading. Don't lead with the big flashy. Lead with the humble confession, leading, praying, serving, and let that produce fruit. I think that's what spiritual leadership is. Um, Okay, chapter, or yeah, chapter 8. We've talked about this before when Israel asked for a king. Um, Remember Deuteronomy 17? God says, you're going to have kings someday. Here's what they should be like and how they should prepare, right? So the asking for a king isn't the most evil thing they could do, or having a king isn't the evil thing that they do necessarily. I think it's them saying, we're ready for a king. We want a king like we want a king. We want a king that's going to make us powerful. It's almost like what they're saying is, we want a king like Jephthah and Othniel and Ahid and Shamgar were. We want a king that's going to lead us in battles. And Samuel's like, I just led you in confession that led to God's victory. We're good. No, 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 no. We want a king. Okay, fine. So he anoints Saul is what he's going to end up doing, um, which is the kind of king they were looking for, not the kind of king they needed, which produces all kinds of problems. So chapter 9, Samuel anoints Saul. The story of Saul is long and confusing and tragic, kind of. That he starts off kind of promising and even humble, like in an insecure way, almost like drastically humble. He's like, I don't want to be king. He's like hiding from it. But then he ends up taking it, ends up doing it, and is pretty good at first. But then his insecurity, I think, turns into pride and arrogance. And instead of being humble and like, I don't deserve this, he's like, okay, fine. And like flips the pendulum to, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And then something happens with him like mentally or spiritually too, where he just is off which is a confusing thing. When you read the story of David, it's like this dark spirit descended on Saul, and then he started throwing spears at people. I'm like, what happened? I don't know what exactly happened, but something happened that wrecked him. Um, so Saul's story is tough. Does that make sense? That's skimming a lot. So chapter 9, he's anointed. Um, becomes king in chapter 10. You see in that, like in verse 9, is when he is like officially made king. And then one of his first things in chapter 11 is he goes and does what he is kind of made to do best. Like he's big, tall, strong. He goes and wins a battle. And everybody's like, oh, this is great. This is what we wanted. I mean, he looks great. So at the end of chapter 11, people are like, yes, for sure. This is our guy. Um, And then Samuel gives a speech because he knows he's about to die. And he's like, okay, be faithful. Don't blow it. Same things as Moses and Joshua did. Be faithful. Don't blow it. I'm about to leave. Um, And then he even... Um, one of the things I love about Samuel's farewell speech in chapter 12 is he's like, hey, I've lived with integrity among you, right? I haven't stolen from you. I haven't done anything. Like, I'm not perfect, but I haven't done anything blatantly wrong. You guys know, right? I would love to be a leader at the end of my life to be able to stand up and say to everybody, hey, I lived among you. You know me. 
we've got no problems left between each other, right? The air is clear. Like, I love that Samuel can do that as a leader. Um, and then he ends up telling them, be faithful, don't blow it, you've got this king, hope it goes okay, is basically the gist of it. Um, and then starting in chapter 13, um, on your sheet there, it just says Saul's failures. So there's a string of Saul just being kind of boneheaded, like, what are you thinking? So um, he, let's see, what the, the first thing he does is he's waiting for um, Samuel to come up and kind of bless their battle, basically. Because you remember, the Israelites went into battle without really praying about it and thought they could just win all their battles, and they lost, and the ark got captured, right? Then when Samuel came and led them in prayer and confession and repentance, God won the battle for them. So it's like they're about to go into this battle, and like, hey, we're going to do this in the right order. So it's implied in the text, um, but it's not clear. So look at chapter 13, verse 8, because this is kind of the key in this story. Chapter 13, 8. It says, he saw, waited seven days. They're kind of, he gathered a whole army. It says in verse 2 that there's 2,000 people, a 2,000-person army with him. Gathered, and it says, he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So that's all it says about this. Saul gathered an army, and he's waiting. And then it says, Samuel didn't come when he said he would come. So we're kind of piecing together. I think they're trying to recreate chapter 7. Does that make sense? with the repentance thing before the Ebenezer thing. Mm. And Samuel hadn't shown up. And Saul's like, well, all the people are leaving. I had this huge army. Now I don't have an army because Samuel's taking too long. So I'll just lead the spiritual thing. Kind of takes matters into his own hands, which in, on one hand to me is always felt a little unfair that God's going to get mad at him for that. It's like he's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to lead this <clears throat> spiritual revival before the battle. And God gets mad at him for that. But I think the, the, the text doesn't give it to us all clearly. That's all the text says about it. But the implication is, Samuel said, God wants you to wait. I'll be there in a little bit, and we'll take care of it. What Saul sees is, it's taking longer than I thought, and my big army is gone. I don't know if we're going to be able to do it. We better do it now, or else it's not going to make sense. And I think God would say, when has timing or the size of an army ever been a problem for me? But when has disobedience been a problem for God? Always. So it seems a little weird, but it's like God has been so clear. It's what we've said all the time through the Old Testament. God has been so clear with what he's wanting. He's not trying to hide his will. He's not trying to be hard to please. Just wait for me until I get there, and then we'll go together. And Saul says, it's taking too long. There's not enough people. I'm going to do it myself. And so God's like, then I'm not going to help you. And gets upset. So that's Saul's first big failure. Um, chapter 14, Jonathan is like kind of a great warrior guy and just goes and attacks some Philistines on his own and wins a big battle. That's pretty cool. And then um, that continues through the middle of chapter 14. Um, chapter 14, starting in verse 24, my heading says Jonathan eats honey. Do you see that? Something like that in your Bible, 1424. So this is another story where Saul is just like, what are you thinking, man? So Saul is mad at the Philistines and he wants to go avenge all the battles that they've won. So he says, nobody in my army is eating. We're fasting all day until we beat the Philistines, which sounds maybe like a holy kind of thing or sounds like that's kind of cool, I guess, that you're going to say, we're going to fast until this is accomplished. Like, wow, what a great leader. But what a stupid thing. We're in battle in the desert at war, carrying our stuff around, marching around. Nobody eat. That's going to go bad. Right? Did God tell Saul to do it? The, the text just says, Saul bound them by an oath. 
Nobody's eating till I get my vengeance. That's what it says. So this isn't God saying, I want this from you. This is Saul saying, I think this is a cool idea that makes me feel good or makes us look good or whatever. And Jonathan was gone doing his fun thing and didn't hear the oath. So he eats honey because he's hungry, because they're in battle. And then people start getting sick. They're not winning battles. Like Saul's not hearing from God like he wants, so he's like, there's a problem. They find out somebody ate. You broke the oath. But Jonathan is the only one around who like has energy and is like vital. You know, like he's doing okay because he ate. Everyone else is feeling miserable. And but they find out Saul finds out Jonathan ate something. He's like, Well, I have to kill you. And Jonathan's like, What? That's ridiculous. And so Saul's like, Well, we're just gonna have to pray about it, but I'm gonna kill you. He says, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severe that if you do not surely die. Uh, so they pray about it and the people uh all convince Saul. That would be stupid to kill your son for eating food while we're in battle. That was a stupid promise you made. And that's kind of how it ends. But that's just another, like, Saul, what are you thinking? You're trying to do this your way, the way that makes you look good or feel good. That's not what God asked for. You're trying to use your position to do something. It's like he's swinging that insecurity pendulum into an arrogance. This really bad leadership. Uh, And then in chapter 15... Um, he goes and leads this huge battle, and they win a battle. And it was supposed to be one of those Joshua completely devoted everything to the Lord battles, you know, where they destroy everything. So they, Saul says, we destroyed everything, and we kept the king and the best of the animals so we can bring it back and make a sacrifice. And God's like, I told you to destroy it. That was the sacrifice. And he's like, right, yeah, we destroyed it and brought back the best to, to like, burn on the altar for you. And God's like, I told you to destroy it. <laughs> so Samuel hears about it. And comes and says, hey, this is not hard. He's been so clear. Because what happens is, if Saul, and this is one of those weird things we read, and like, again, it doesn't seem fair, but if I'm trying to think about the ancient context, Saul is the warrior conquering king, goes into this battle, wins the battle. If everything there is destroyed, he comes back home and says, God destroyed everything, and he doesn't really have anything to show for it. If he wins a huge battle and comes and brings some wealth and a foreign king into town, even if it's to sacrifice to God, who's leading that ceremony? Saul. Who gets praised for executing the king? Saul. Who looks good for having something great to offer God? Saul. What God is after is, I won that battle for you, make that clear. What Saul is after is, yes, you won the battle, and I'm going to get to lead a cool worship service with all the stuff we found. And God's like, no, that's not what I asked. And so this is, this is kind of a famous verse, um, but it's in chapter 15, verse 22. I think we often hear this verse um, out of context, which isn't terrible. Usually it's applied decently, but I think seeing it in context makes it better. This is the context in that when Saul's like, I was trying to do a good thing. And Samuel says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. That's the context this verse comes in. Have you guys heard that verse before? I think it's a fairly known one. That a lot of times you use, like, God isn't just after you going through the motions. He wants your heart, which, again, I think is a good application. But in context, how much richer to say Saul is saying, I'm trying to do a good thing. And it's like, no, you did it out of arrogance and disobedience. You're trying to show off. You didn't obey me. Your heart is out of line. It's not, it's not even as simple as, like, you were doing something you didn't care about. I say, like, no, you were doing something to get attention. That's not what I want. Huge. And so that's when God is like, we're done with you, Saul. 
Like you can't, you are not going to be king much longer, and your uh, sons and offspring are not going to be kings either. We're done because you can't obey me. Um, and that's when God kind of draws the line under Saul's leadership. Yes, yeah, yeah. But okay, I might be wrong. But didn't you say that Jonathan was his son? Right? But Jonathan seemed like he did everything pretty peacefully, like he was fighting well and he seemed yeah. like he was pretty faithful. Jonathan's so, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, so why would just because He's a good character in scripture. Um, I think it could be that God just knew I want David. And and maybe even to make the point, like you guys asked for a king and you found this one. If you let me pick a king, it'll be better. He could be kind of making that point. It also could be, um, I mean, it's that passage John Mark Comer keyed in on and God has a name. That like God shows mercy to thousands, but the consequences of sin go to the third and fourth generation. Remember that? I think this could be, is probably an example of that, where it's like, did Jonathan do anything wrong? No. Saul blew it. And Jonathan doesn't get, like, eternally condemned for that, but because his dad could not handle the position of leadership, there are consequences for that that Jonathan has to live in. Mm-hmm. So again, I don't, I don't think Jonathan is, like, punished or held accountable for his dad's sin, but he has to live in the consequences of his dad's sin. Mm-hmm. Is I think that's one of the realities of that kind of verse, which is like sad. I think it should feel sad mm-hmm. for Jonathan, which should draw us to, I want to leave a legacy of faithfulness because my actions are going to impact the people around me. Even though that may seem not fair for an individualist thing, it's like, well, generations are affected by what we do. I think that's kind of what's happening. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. It's a great question. It's a good question. question. Yeah. Uh, after... The verse 22 where it's like I want obedience not sacrifice yeah and then 23 uh, can you <laughs> explain like what that means the sin of divination yeah so I think that's um, the sin of divination which actually Saul also participates in later I think is the like consulting the spiritual realm with forces besides God to discern the future or whatever like mm-hmm. fortune tellers that kind of thing um, so yeah, I think he's just saying, like, that is really bad and that's rebellion. Um, but your arrogance is like that. Like, rebellion is divinate. Like, we would know consulting some other spirit besides me is bad. Your arrogance, though, is like idolatry because you rejected me. That, that, so I think he's, he's trying to say, like, it may seem to you like this is a little piddly thing of, like, I didn't follow the directions exactly, but I tried to. And he's like, no, this is as if you consulted some other god. You just committed idolatry by disobeying me. Yeah, I think that's what he's saying. Good question. Which again is like, whoa, but God has been so clear. You know, he, he's said exactly what he's after. So, Okay. Uh, chapter 16 is when Samuel anoints David. And so you guys know that story. All the brothers come in, but he's looking for the youngest one. And that's who Samuel anoints as king. Um, David goes in um, to Saul's service. The, the middle of chapter 16 like, plays the heart for him, and Saul feels better when he's kind of depressed. But then later Saul will turn on him um, when he gets jealous. David defeats Goliath in chapter 17, and then all David becomes like super popular because he won this big battle. So all the people in Israel are like, yeah, Saul's won some victories, but David has won more. 
David's awesome, like he's everybody's favorite, and Saul gets really, really jealous, um, which just kind of kicks off all these problems um, of Saul kind of chasing out David, chasing David around, um, which you see chapter 18, Saul's jealousy of David, uh, is when that really kind of kicks off. So from 18 through 30, um, again, we're not going to get into all these stories, but this is the section, 1 Samuel 18 through 30, where David is running from Saul the whole time. So Saul is jealous and chasing him, and then sometimes he'll be like, oh, I'm so sorry, come here close, you're wonderful. And then he'll get mad again, and it's like Saul seems legitimately crazy. Like something happened to him spiritually, I think, where he is just off. And I mean, I wonder if God, because if you read those stories we just skimmed over, like Saul would have interactions with God, and God would tell him what to do. But then he would be disobedient, and so it says, like, Saul wasn't hearing from God anymore. Later, later, there's a story where it explicitly says, Saul wasn't hearing from God like he used to. So he goes and consults a witch, which is, like, bad decision. But trying to think compassionately, empathetically for this guy who was chosen as king, didn't really want it, tried to do a good job, didn't do a good job, and then God explicitly says, you and your ancestors will not be king anymore. I'm not speaking to you anymore. That's devastating. That's going to wreck you on some level. Now, then I think those Saul's choices make that reality, right? So, like, did God just curse Saul forever and God treated him like crap? I don't think so. I don't think that matches the character of who God is. I think God didn't say you're not going to be king anymore. And then Saul seems to keep making bad, selfish decisions. And so God's like, see, I'm not going to communicate with you. You keep making decisions like this. It's almost like God's prophecy is coming true because Saul keeps making bad decisions. Does that make sense? And that's kind of what plays out chapters 18 through 30 a lot. Is Saul just continuing to distance himself from God and then be mad that he's distant from God. And it's like, well, it's not his fault. It's yours, Saul. And if you would turn back to him, we know God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, extending to thousands of generations. Right? Mm-hmm. But Saul won't turn back. So that's um, this story from 18 through 30. Um, so you can kind of look at those chapter headings you know it's basically david winning little battles every little place he goes he's kind of wandering through the wilderness and everywhere he goes he'll win a little battle make some friends and maybe do some sly things sometimes but he's kind of crafty and it works for him david's a weird character too because he's not super perfect either there's a lot of things david does where it's like he's not always honest and he kind of like plays things to his advantage a lot but he never worships idols he never directly disobeys god and so god's still choosing him. I, now, I don't think, you know, the Old Testament describes a lot of things that it doesn't prescribe, right? We've talked about that. So a lot of things David does, I don't think the Bible is saying, so go and do likewise. Mm-hmm. I think the Bible is just saying, here's a character and what he did, but look, he never worshipped idols. So God is always ready to work with him when he comes to God. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a huge deal. And for us, again, it's, it's like weird, because I would say, but David is dishonest, so I wouldn't trust him. And God is like, who is honest? David never worshipped foreign gods. I'm like, well, I never worshipped foreign gods. And it's like, well, maybe I do. You know? Like, if we really think about what those things are and what those things mean, I think we can get there um, just giving our heart allegiance away. You know? Um, so I think it's a key thing that's easy to miss because it feels so weird. David's worshiping, not worshipping foreign gods. Well, that's easy. Like, I don't think it's as easy as we think it is. And the fact that David doesn't do that relative to Saul, relative to other leaders, the judges, is huge, 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 huge deal. So that's why um, David still is kind of chosen um, by God and useful to him. 
Um, so let's see, chapter 24. Again, if you're just looking through like 21, 22, 23, there's a lot of David saving people, David traveling here, David camping out here. Um, Saul is pursuing him at the end of chapter 23. In chapter 24 is one of the times that David sees Saul, could kill him, but doesn't. It happens twice, it's going to happen again. Chapter 25, David meets um, Abigail, who becomes one of his wives. Um, and she was married to a guy originally named Nabal, who was a jerk. And she kind of helps David figure out how to get around Nabal being a jerk. And then she marries David. Another strange story. Um, but it's in there. Uh, and if you read the details, you, I bet you would feel more compassion than you feel the way I just summarized it for you. But it's still weird. Um, chapter 26, David has another chance to kill Saul and doesn't. Um, and then chapter 27, David ends up, because Saul's so mad at him, David goes and hangs out with some Philistines who were like the enemy, the enemy. But David makes friends with some of them and kind of helps them with stuff as long as he's not killing his fellow Israelites. And David's okay with that. Kind of strange. He doesn't become a Philistine. He doesn't worship Philistine gods, but he makes friends with them. Um, chapter eight, 28 is the section that I alluded to earlier um, where Saul is just so desperate to have guidance from something, from God somehow, that he goes and finds a witch. And it's interesting when you read this um, story, he's, he finds out there's this woman who does this, so he disguises himself to go to her and say, hey, I need your help, basically bringing up someone from the dead so I can talk to Samuel. And she's like, Saul said that we're not allowed to do this. And he's like, just do it. It's like... It's Saul, but he just disguised himself so she didn't realize. But that's like the depths of just how messed up he is. Mm. He disguised himself to go explicitly do something that everybody knows he banished from the land, and now he's doing it. Which, like we said with so much of the Old Testament, is like crazy, terrible Saul. It's like we would not do it. I mean, how many things do you talk against or counsel against that you go and do the next day? You know, it's so hard to live like that. But I think that's why we need people around us to point it out. Like Saul's not listening to counsel at this point. Anybody who crosses him, he throws spears at. So it's hard to, to confront him. Um, I love that she's the witch of Endor just because that's where the Ewoks live, even though it has nothing to do with this. But every time I see it, I'm like, oh, that's funny. Okay. <laughs> To me and Griffin, at least. We like it. Um, okay, so chapter 29, David is with his Philistines, and they're going to go into battle against some of the Israelites uh, in Israelite territory, and David's going to go with them, and a bunch of the other leaders um, are like, what if he turns on us? And he's like, no, David will be loyal. So, um, But the other Philistines are nervous. Like David's going to go into battle with us against some of his people or in his territory. He can't come with us. He's going to turn on us. So the Philistine guy sends him back, David goes and finds other people waging war, so he destroys them. So it's just kind of, everywhere David goes, he wins. Everywhere David goes, he wins. Uh, chapter 31, Saul goes into a battle that he was basically trying to see God's, um, see the future about, which is why he tried to bring up Samuel on Endor. And it's just like I said on Endor, that was an accident. But that's where it is. That's how it goes. Um, so chapter 31, he goes into battle. They're losing. Saul gets injured, like fatally injured. And so he ends up killing himself. He asks his servant to do it um, just because he doesn't want the Philistines to kill him. So he asks his servant to do it. And his servant says no. And Saul does it. But then later his servant says that he did it, which is, I don't know what happened there, but who knows. Um, so in... Second Samuel 1. You moving with me, following me so far? I know we're going fast. Again, this is just recording? a lot of narrative. Huh? Are you recording? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so 2 Samuel 1, um, you can see the heading there, David hears of Saul's death. So the servant that Saul tried to convince to kill him, or did kill him, whatever happened, comes and tells David, hey, Saul's dead. And David's like, how? He says he was injured, and Saul didn't want the Philistines to kill him, so he asked me to do it. So I did it. And I think this guy's thinking, like, I did an honorable thing. And David's like, you killed the king? You're going to die. Like, David gets really mad at him, which is, you know, confusing and jarring. But the next, look at um, midway through chapter 1, David has this psalm of lament for those people that died. That Saul, who was trying to kill him, he hears that he dies, and David, like, breaks down emotionally. Which is, I think gives us a glimpse into David's soft heart and also just reminds us again, like the same guy who didn't kill Saul when he could have is the guy who's heartbroken when his arch enemy dies. Like David just had so much respect for the fact that Saul was king until God made him not king anymore that David was sad when he died. It's crazy. And I think good for us to get a hold of somehow to find like sometimes God calls us to respect people that are hard for us to respect, to submit to leaders that are hard for us to submit to. But if it really is God's person and God's position, you got to do it. There are times when we have to confront it. There are times when we ought to leave. On the whole, the biblical example is, if this really is God's anointed leader, then you got to find a way to deal with it. Now, David didn't stay in the kingdom. Like, he left and ran away. But he didn't want to kill Saul because Saul was anointed by God to be king. So how exactly that always plays out for us is really hard to discern. Like, you can only prayerfully discern that, I think. But I think it's, a, it's at least important for us to wrestle with. The norm is, if there's a leader in position because God has orchestrated it, we're called to submit. That's the norm. Now again, there are circumstances where you have to run away or circumstances where you have to confront, and we need to prayerfully discern that. But David's submission for a long time has to at least challenge us, right? Has to at least challenge us. And it's hard to do. Um, Okay, so chapter 2, starting in chapter 2, you see he's anointed as king over Judah, um, but he's not over all of Israel yet. So basically a couple of the tribes are like, yeah, he's king here, like in kind of his homeland area, down in the southern part of the kingdom. The kingdom's not divided yet, but they're still using this terminology because the tribe of Judah is there. Um, or maybe this terminology is written later by somebody who knew the divided kingdom, right? Maybe? And is writing back and kind of imposing that language because maybe Gad wrote it down way later, right? Or something like that. So um, David's anointed king in some of those places, but not all of it yet. And then you see partway through chapter 2, war between the houses of David and Saul. So there's, that's going to go on for a while through these chapters. It's basically like people who are loyal to Saul still fighting battles. Saul's general eventually ends up coming over and joining David. Um, and then David's general doesn't believe him and kills him. And David's mad about that too. And somebody comes and says, Saul's general is dead. And David's like, you thought that would be good news? I'm going to kill you. That's not good news. He came over to our side. It's like crazy. It's just all crazy. Um, that's in the middle of chapter 3 where it says Joab murders Abner. Uh, Abner was Saul's general. Joab was David's general. Um, and they have their thing. Um, Ishbosheth is a... Um, a descendant of Saul and um, some people go and kill him and tell David we killed him and David's really mad that they killed him so they're like people are trying to be loyal to David by killing off somebody who would have a claim to the throne because he was Saul's relative does that make sense so they come and say David we helped you we killed off this heir to the throne and David's like that's not what I wanted like uh, he it seems like he's a little hard to please but because he's trying to be so honorable it's like people can't figure out so it, these are all weird stories, you know, that David's getting, like, so held to honor Saul 
there it's weird to deal with like the death and the killing and all that stuff but the principle it boils down to to me is david is trying to be honorable to people and people around him are trying to act in the cultural norm and they can't understand when david is acting so strange out of a desire to do things in a godly way does that make sense if you really boil it down, still weird things about the story, but that's basically what's happening. David is being so weirdly godly that people can't figure him out. And they keep kind of getting it wrong. And I think David's reaction to them isn't great. But I just wonder if that could be true of me in my leadership or in my life. That I'm doing things in a way that people are like, nobody's done it that way before. That's weird. Are you sure you, like, this doesn't make any sense that you're being that kind, gracious, whatever. Like, yeah, I'm being godly, not worldly. You know, like, I, I just wonder if there are enough things in my life that are godly, not worldly, that people might even have a hard time understanding it if they came from a different perspective. Does that make sense, what I'm trying to say? I think it's an interesting thing to wrestle with uh, from these stories. So chapter 5, David becomes king over all Israel. All the tribes unite and say, you're our guy. Um, and then you can see there, probably through chapter 5, David conquers Jerusalem. Like So he really sets up his kingdom there, drives out all the little foreigners that were still there. David defeats the Philistines uh, midway through chapter 5. Then the ark is brought into Jerusalem. He's like, we've got our place, now we're bringing the ark. And he dances, and um, his wife Michael doesn't like it. Then um, 2 Samuel 7, we talked about this. This is when David wants to build a temple, but God says, no, but I'm going to build a house for you that's going to last forever. Um, and then David responds uh, in worship after that to finish chapter 7. Um, and then chapters 8 through 10, if you see on your sheet there, it just said David's successes. Are you, is it helpful to have this outline? Are you mm-hmm. tracking with me a little bit? I'm just trying to organize the flow for you. Um, so David wins a bunch of battles in chapter 8. Um, Mephibosheth, David and Mephibosheth, is a really interesting story in chapter 9. Mephibosheth is Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son. So basically, once David's kingdom is completely secure, he finds somebody who he knew as a servant of Saul's and says, hey, is there any descendant of Saul left? And I think everybody's probably imagining, because I'm going to kill them and that will secure my kingdom, right? That's what would have made cultural sense. But David says, no, I want to honor them. If somebody's still related to Saul, I'm going to elevate them and honor them. So they say, there is this one guy, Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who lives in Lodabar, and he can't walk. Both of his legs are injured. He's crippled. He's left. And David's like, bring him here. And I'd imagine if I'm Mephibosheth and they're like, the king wants to see you. He's like, oh, he found me. What is he going to do? Because this is what kings do. They kill off all the descendants of the last king. He comes into the palace and David says, actually what it says is, then Mephibosheth showed up and David just says, Mephibosheth. And he's like, what? He's like, you're honored. I want you to eat in my palace the rest of your life. I want you to have this land that belonged to your father Saul. I want you to have a big house. I want you to have all you need. I want you to have servants. I'm going to take care of you and come eat at my table anytime you want. Which is this incredible story, just of grace and kindness, that wouldn't have made any sense at all. Any sense at all. But David just says, I'm going to show kindness. And it's by his kindness to this person who could have had a claim to David's own throne that shows, oh, this is a man after God's heart. You see, that's a, like it's those kind of little clues into David where you're like, he's different. I see what God sees. Still weird, but I see what God sees because not everybody does stuff like that with somebody like Mephibosheth. Um, so that's a big, a big deal uh, in chapter 9. 
Uh, David goes on more battles in chapter 10, defeating the Ammonites. David and Bathsheba happens in chapter 11. You guys probably know that story at least a little bit. So from chapter 11 um, on, it's going gonna, it's gonna to shift a little bit from like David is so awesome all the time to things haven't gone great, actually. So we've got the David and Bathsheba incident, chapters 11 through 12. Amnon and Tamar in chapter 13. So one of David's sons named Amnon falls in love with one of David's daughters named Tamar. They're from different women, so they're half-related. Um, but And then uh, Absalom comes and tells David about it, but he doesn't do anything about it because Amnon is awful to Tamar. And David doesn't really do anything about it. Passive dad, another problem in Scripture. You add him to the list um, because he doesn't confront a problem. And so um, that just gets worse and worse and worse. And then Absalom gets more bitter and more bitter and more bitter and ends up leaving the kingdom because he's so mad. And then, because he kills Amnon, and David's mad that one of his sons died. And Absalom's like, I, Absalom's like, I told you that Amnon was awful. And it's like, it's just this mess because David won't address sin. Because his son, probably, probably, because his son is committing the same kind of sin that he committed with Bathsheba, I would guess. That he's like, well, I don't know, who am I to confront it? I just, I don't know, it's hard. Like, no, confront it, it's wrong. You got to deal with it. And so you got to overcome that in you to be able to deal with it in people or else you're going to have cycles that repeat. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah? So Absalom ends up fleeing, and then he returns to Jerusalem, chapter 14. You've seen this? And Absalom ends up kind of becoming really popular. So he, like, sits at the gate and, like, sows these little seeds of dissension in the kingdom. I'm like, man, you know, if I was king, I would fix your problem. What's your problem, man? If I was king, I would fix that. And all these people are like, wow, I like Absalom. Maybe he should be the king. So he gains this huge following and kind of leads a rebellion against his dad. And then his dad... Is like, well, I'm not going to fight it. I'm like, what? You're, you're David. You fight everybody all the time. <laughs> but he's not going to fight off Absalom. Absalom kind of takes over. David goes on the run. Then, um, and you can read all this story. It's fascinating. Somebody ends up killing Absalom and comes back to tell David how proud they are. I killed your enemy. And David's really mad. And, you know, you know the story. Um, but that's, again, a glimpse into the weird, complex heart of David. Of like, I'm not going to fight back this rebellion that I could have repented. But then I'm mad when you fight it back. But I'm glad to have my kingdom back. And it's just like, what is happening? This guy who was so promising still is not a great leader most of the time. It's weird. Um, but that's kind of what's happening. So chapter 18 is when Absalom dies. Uh, David mourns for a long time. And then David goes back to Jerusalem in chapter 19. You following this? Three pages. So David's back into, into the throne. Um, he meets with Mephibosheth in chapter 19. Uh, then there's another rebellion against David in chapter 20. Um, people are just kind of getting, like, feisty. Um, chapter 21, do you remember when we talked about the Gibeonites? Yeah, a little bit, from Joshua. They were the people who said, you know, we're foreigners, we're from a long way away. I know we, we're in Canaan now, but please don't kill us. We'll be nice to you. And the Israelites say, okay. And then it's like God kind of makes allowance for it. Well, Saul... Mr. Take matters into my own hands and do what I think is right to try to be honorable goes and tries to wipe out all the Gibeonites because it was so terrible that they allowed that we allowed them to live here. Which, remember, we talked about even last week. Like, it's a weird thing. They probably shouldn't have done that. But God allowed it. So once God said, this is okay, you got to do what God says, even when it doesn't make sense. Saul says, this doesn't make sense. I'm killing them. David finds out about that and calls the Gibeonites in and says, hey, we made a treaty with you. Saul broke it. I'm so sorry. God told us to honor you, and we didn't. How can we make this right? 
And then they say, well, why don't you get a bunch of Saul's descendants and kill him? And it's like, okay. I'm like, gosh, again, it's so strange. But what David is doing, or at least what this is trying to present David doing, is saying Saul was arrogant and took matters into his own hands to try to do what he thought was right, that would look good. David is doing what God said to do, honor these people. So even though what he does is like, I, that's strange. Is God pleased that all those people died and were publicly embarrassed? I doubt it. Is God pleased that David said, regardless of how it looks, I'm going to do what God said to do? I think God's pleased about that, as opposed to Saul saying, I want to do what I want to do. Does that make sense? Did he kill the one that he honored then? Uh, no. Because he already did. No, he's still there. Okay. Yeah, it's different ones. I think they're kind of distant relatives. It doesn't give us specifics. It just says seven. Well, maybe it does give us specifics. Because but they're not people. Saying, like, it does give us specifics. If you're saying, like, kill all of Saul's family members he's like okay I'll kill all these except for this one that honored how yeah. would I feel like they'd probably be like well no kill all of them yeah they just say let seven this is 21 verse 6 let seven of his male descendants be given us to be killed and exposed before the okay. Lord of Gebeah of Saul so the king said I will give them to you so he doesn't it says the king spared Mephibosheth son of Jonathan this is verse 7 because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan son of Saul but he took and then it lists seven other ones so it doesn't take all of Saul's descendants. They just say take seven, random seven of Saul's male descendants. But did it at the same time in the past couple of verses be like, hey, does Saul have anybody still alive like in his descendants so I can honor them? Yeah. Why would they just pull out that one? Good question. Like, oh, there's just this one that we're going to honor. But Good he's question. like, but I was going to honor any of his descendants. Yeah, I'll tell you my guess. Okay. My guess is that David was looking for the closest relative of okay. Saul at that time. So I think Mephibosheth probably, like the son of Jonathan is like, that's right in line. Yeah. So I think he's like, that's the closest relative, let's honor that. And was probably even more specifically looking for a descendant of Jonathan, because that was David's best friend. Mm-hmm. So like, this is Jonathan's son, there's honor. But these are seven random descendants, which like oh, okay. could have been distant cousins of Saul, you know, or distant nephews. Does that make sense? Yes. Still weird, but I think that's the answer. Yeah. yeah. Good questions. Okay, chapter 22, David um, says, He's saying to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hands of Saul. So this just kind of records David's like life culmination, psalm of praise. It sounds a lot like the other psalms you know. Um, chapter 23 records some of his last words. Um, the stories of his mighty men, chapter 23, verse 8, which you should read sometime um, if you just want cool Bible stories that are like, this is a little crazy but kind of cool. Um, David's mighty man. One of my favorite sermons I've ever heard was at CIY. Mark Moore preached on this. And it was like that I will remember that night forever. These are cool stories if you just kind of read them and think about God using people to do amazing things. Um, chapter 24 is a weird story. We'll talk about this uh, a little bit more again when we're in Chronicles. So I won't camp out on here a ton. But basically what happens in chapter 24, it says, uh, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, if you remember, that's his general of his armies. The king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. And then Joab tries to talk him out of it because enrolling fighting men and numbering your fighting men kind of shows I'm in charge of all this and I'm accumulating a huge army well why you know like if, I mean think about when you watch the news if they're like North Korea is amassing a stockpile of weapons you're like oh that means they're going to fight somebody you know it's so like 
Israel's amassing a huge army. Oh, that means they're going to fight somebody. But has God told them to go into battle? No. Did God even at the beginning of this chapter tell David, get ready for battle and accumulate an army? No. He said, take a census of the people. And David says, okay, we'll do a draft and get, a, get the army ready. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what I said. And so God gets really mad at David for doing that and punishes him. And they sends a plague on the people for days because God's so mad that David was that disobedient. Another story we read, and I'm like, what is happening? But again, I think what's happening is God's saying, hey, take a census of your people. Get to know them. Get to know where they are, which is something God's done often right throughout the Pentateuch as we've gone through it. So wants to know who they are, where they are, how many they are. Good to know. And David says, okay, I'll get an army. And God's like, I don't want you to have an army. When I want you to go into battle, I'll tell you. When I don't want you to go into battle, don't go into battle. So he gets really mad. David repents of it eventually, um, basically because God calls him out in, here in Samuel. And then it kind of ends. And then David builds an altar to memorialize the event. Strange event. Chronicles also records this, but from a different light, which we'll talk about later. So in this story, it seems like God said something. David was disobedient. David only changed when he was backed into a corner, and God kind of forced him to change. And then he finally was like, yeah, that was wrong. God, you need to have mercy on me because I screwed up. That's kind of how this story plays out. Strange story, but it's a story. And again, we'll talk about it more in Chronicles. So if you have questions, we'll do it then. But makes sense so far, Samuel? Flew through that fast. Hopefully, is a helpful overview. Do you guys have questions or thoughts about any Samuel stuff before we close out this one? No? Okay. Um, let's take another break, and then we'll jump into Kings and Chronicles. And we, I think we might be able to do it, guys. It's possible. It's possible. We'll give it a shot. Let's take a break. We'll come back.